I'd like to begin by taking a moment to answer a question that I am asked a lot lately. No, I will not be disappearing. I will be the senior rabbi until June, and after that, even though I will be away on the East Coast for a year, I will come back periodically, and God willing, we'll have a relationship with Sinai for many, many, many years to come. But I don't want to speak this morning about how I will be here in the future. I want to talk about how in the world I got here. And in order to explain how unlikely it is that I would be here, I have to ask your indulgence for a moment for me to tell you about myself as a child. When I was 11 years old, and we lived in Philadelphia, we used to go down to the Jersey Shore, which everyone did for part of the summer. One year, my mother said to me, David, take the groceries and put them in the trunk of the car. So I did. Then we drove the two and a half hours to the Jersey Shore. Got there, opened the trunk, no groceries. She said, David, did you put the groceries in the car? I said, yes. She said, in this car? I was the kind of kid who could drive in a car for two and a half hours and not notice that it was not the car that I had put the milk in. <laughs> one day in synagogue, my mother looked over at me and said, David, I have seen people with mismatched socks. You are the first person I have ever seen with mismatched shoes. <laughs> I had a brown shoe and a black shoe and I didn't notice when I put them on in the morning. When we moved from Harrisburg to Philadelphia, I was 10 years old. I had two older brothers and one younger. We moved to a house with three stories. My father said, it goes in age order. The oldest gets to pick the bedroom first, then the second, then the third. There was one bedroom on the third floor. All the rest were on the second floor. I was sure one of my two older brothers would pick the third floor. After all, you get to be alone. To my amazement, they wanted to be with everyone else. I loved my family, don't get me wrong. But I spent all my teenage years alone with books and chess sets and I could not have been happier. When I saw my father, constantly interacting with other people and taking on their problems and living their lives, I decided to become an English professor. <laughs> I was always the kind of kid who could walk by someone and not notice, who could hear someone's story and forget it a week later, not because I wasn't paying attention, but because I was, as William James once said, when one of his students told him that another professor was absent-minded, James said, no, he's not. He is present-minded somewhere else. <laughs> I was always present-minded somewhere else. Then, one summer, 
I was at Camp Ramah. I, by the way, hated being a camper, as you can imagine, but I liked being a counselor because you could tell the kids what to do and then go off and read a book in the forest, which is what I did, until other people said, uh, there are children you have to take care of here. When Rabbi Elliot Dorf approached me and told me I should go to rabbinical school. Actually, he didn't do it quite so straight off. I, I had said to him a long time before that I really had a lot of doubts about God because I spent most of my teenage years not believing at all. And even when I started to believe it was a possibility, I wasn't sure. And he said to me, well, what do you want to do with your life? I said, I want to be a writer. He said, what do you want to write about? Nobody had ever asked me that. I said, well, I don't actually know anything. I just want to write. And he said, go to rabbinical school for a year. The worst that happens is you'll learn things. The best is you'll find your subject. I went to rabbinical school and I want you to know what it is that kept me there. When I went to Penn, to the University of Pennsylvania, I had wonderful professors, but what they taught was not about their lives. You could teach a great book, had nothing to do with how you lived. And then I went to rabbinical school and these people were teaching things that they were trying to live. And I thought, that's pretty cool to actually teach and live the same thing. And I thought, it's okay because I can be a rabbi professor. I can stay on the same track. One thing I knew just as I knew I would never be a rabbi when I was a kid, now I knew I'd never be a pulpit rabbi. I hope you're following this trajectory. <laughs> then Rabbi Ron Schulman, I want to give him credit, in 1983 led services in Krauss Pavilion Rickles Gymnasium, and he graduated rabbinical school and they said, do you know anyone who could take over from you, and he suggested me. And so on Thursday, September 27th, 1984, 39 years ago, I walked into that gymnasium and that pavilion. I saw the flower pots in the basketball hoops. <laughs> I knew almost no one. I saw the organ, and I did not grow up with an organ, and I remember asking the president at the time, do we need an organ? And he said, yes, you need an organ. And over time, I got used to that service and I loved that service. And you know what I loved most about that service? I will be honest with you. I got to speak and to teach and to leave. That is, I got to meet people and have pleasant interactions with them, but then I had no more responsibilities. And therefore, I could sit in that third floor room, metaphorically, with my books and my chess sets and feel okay. Because I was still me. I remember I used to stay at the Del Capri. I don't know if any of you remember the Del Capri. It was a hotel on Wilshire that don't, no longer exists. And one Yom Kippur, this is me again. I didn't have mismatched shoes, but I had forgotten to pack socks. <laughs> and it was right before Yom Kippur, and I was in a panic because the rabbi can't show up without socks on Yom Kippur. Maybe today it's more fashionable, 
but not in the 1980s. You didn't go without socks on Yom Kippur. So I had this, like, havraka, this lightning bolt. I should go down to the laundry. And I did, and I begged one of the people who was doing laundry, do you have an extra pair of black socks? And of course, someone had left them behind. And whoever that person is, I am eternally grateful. <laughs> but still, no intention of coming to a pulpit. And then I was teaching at the Jewish Theological Seminary and living in Hackensack, New Jersey, when Eileen got pregnant with Samara, and then, as often happens, Samara was born. <laughs> and we thought, my God, what I was doing for a living was traveling around and writing books and giving speeches. But if I was at a synagogue, I would be home to help raise a child. And so, in February of 1997, after speaking to a couple of you, and you know who you are, I gave my tryout speech. And come July, I was the rabbi of Sinai Temple. I was honestly worried because I knew me. I had lived with me for a long time. And I knew that I was a books and ideas and absent-minded type. And that people deserve better than that. And when I thought about how it is that I got here, as somebody very close to me said, it was the hand of God. Heschel says, God speaks slowly in your life, a syllable at a time, and it isn't until you can read the sentence backwards that you see how God speaks. So maybe it was God who put me here. I don't know. But whatever it was, I realized that this was a place of discomfort, and discomfort is how you grow. And so I used to have a standing joke with my daughter when she lived with me. It would be Saturday night, and I would say, I can't believe I have to get into a tuxedo and go to the Beverly Hills Hotel or go to and do a wedding, and I just want to sit here and read and watch Netflix and stay home. And she said, and then, Dad, every time you came home and I would say, how was the wedding? You would go, it was great. <laughs> I had such a good time. Because actually connecting to other human beings turns out to be, newsflash, a powerful experience. Even for people for whom that's not their natural metier, their natural way of being. And so I started to divide my time here between shattering and hard. Most of it, of course, was day to day. But then there were the shattering experiences. Standing alone with the coffin of two infants who had died, whose parents, for very good reasons, could not come. And I stood there by myself, 
in the cemetery, looking down at this tiny coffin, saying the prayers one after another and knowing that it was my responsibility somehow, I didn't know how I got there, but it was my responsibility to usher these pure, innocent souls into eternity. And it was shattering. It was shattering to hold the hand of someone who, has, who is dying, which I have done more than once. To sit with a child in my office in total silence for 15 minutes until finally he started to cry. to drive to a home where a parent has just committed suicide and take the parent's child out for a walk and try to convince them that that parent that had just left them really loved them. Even some of the experiences that should have been positive sometimes turned out to be shattering. In all the years I have been here, there's only one couple that I refuse to marry. A couple that sat in my office in their wedding interview, and they were clearly having problems. And so I asked them a question that usually brings out some of the joy and some of the wonder of the relationship. I said to him, what do you love about her? And he said, well, not as much as I used to. And I saw her face, and I felt shattered. And I told them that they had to get help or I wouldn't marry them, and I never saw them again. But I want you to know, those experiences were not hard. They break you apart, but they're not hard. Let me tell you what's hard. What's hard is to go into services and have a woman come up to you whom you've known for years and say, you know, last month my husband was in the hospital for three weeks and he was in bad shape. And I say, oh, I'm so sorry. And she said, I told you. And I said, I'm really sorry. And she said, in words I will never forget, he could have used a call. He could have used a call. What's hard is to have someone say, you walked by me yesterday, Rabbi, and you ignored me. What's hard is to have a conversation with somebody about someone in their family that was significant and deep and meant a lot to them and to have them tell me, you know, I walked by you a week later and I don't even think you knew who I was. In other words, to hurt people because of who I am and have always been. And even though I have grown, part of me is still on the third floor. I know that this will sound very strange to you, maybe it won't, but you know the part of the service that I both enjoy most and fear most, it's carrying the Torah around. Because I know I will not look someone in the eye, not shake someone's hand, not pay attention to someone, and they will think, and maybe they'll tell me, and maybe they won't. There's the rabbi again. 
didn't bother to look at me, didn't bother to acknowledge me, clearly doesn't care about me. And I want to tell them, no, it's David on the third floor. It's not that I don't care. It's that there's something amiss in my brain, always has been. I didn't bring the groceries to New Jersey. But even from those experiences, I grew. I remember when I came before the congregation and I was sick. I was very sick. More than once. And more than once, I didn't know if I would live. But I knew that if I lived, that the knowledge of what it is to be sick and to be scared, I knew that if God spared me, it would teach me more than any book. So where is the hand of God? Some of it may be in what we don't see, but a Hasidic rabbi said, we are God's hands in this world. And the people over the years, the clergy and the staff and all of you who literally pulled me through, and those who are close in my life who never let me fall, I am the improbable rabbi. I am what they used to call a Luftmensch, which means an airman. Somebody whose head is in the clouds and who has to continually pull themselves back to earth and I have a certain astonishment that I have survived in this job for so long when a keen awareness of other people in their lives is so important. But you made space to, for my faults. You were kind to my shortcomings and you cheered me on when I got it right. And I know a good rabbi, like a good parent, prepares people for when they won't be there anymore, or at least not there in the same way. So let me tell you about the song that this congregation loves to sing, Lador Vador. It means from generation to generation. But if you really sing it, and you really believe it, and you think it's the motto of this congregation, understand it's not only about parents and children, it's about generations. It's about how one generation of leadership gives way to another, Lador Vador. It's about how you grow with one person, and then you learn how to grow with someone new. I'm going to tell you a story from the history of Sinai Temple. There is only one other rabbi who served here 26 years, Jacob Cohn. He was the paradigmatic rabbi of Sinai Temple, Cohn Chapel, Jacob Cohn. Some of you may remember him. I know Ariel remembers him. Because Ariel and I share many things, although I don't remember Jacob Cohn. We share this as a 
parting high holidays together as we have spoken about and the feelings that it brings up for both of us. And I don't wanna go through this sermon without saying what a joy it has been to share this congregation and community with Ariel Cohen. But I wanna tell you a story about Jacob Cohen when he retired. The rabbi who succeeded him was named Israel Chodas. Everybody, everybody in this community, the only rabbi they ever knew was, his, was Jacob Cohn. And I heard this story from Jack Reamer, who's an older colleague. He said, you know, when Chodas had his installation, when he was being brought in as the new rabbi, Cohn was in line and they were shaking hands and someone came up to Rabbi Cohn and said, Rabbi Cohn, I have a question about my child. And Cohn said, I already know the answer said, what? He said, the answer is, if you have a question about your child, do what I would do. Ask the new rabbi of Sinai Temple, Israel Chodas. That's what it is to understand that no one is indispensable. People say to me, the place won't be the same. Of course it won't be the same. It's not supposed to be the same. It's not the same today as it was five years ago, and it's not the same five years ago as it was 20 years ago. Change is life. And you are God's hands for 117 years. And so before I come to the last part of this, I wanna say that this, this institution, these rabbis, this cantor, this place deserves your support more than you know. Have we been perfect? No. But God knows we have tried. And when this is done in a few minutes, People are gonna come around and they're gonna collect cards for money and I'm not gonna make a big pitch, I'm just gonna to say to you, 117 years this synagogue has been here and that is no accident. It's not, it's not because people have loved the rabbi. Nobody loves a rabbi for 117 years. It's because this place outlasts any person any personality, any collection of people. And it's important and it stands for something. And people pay attention to what comes out of Sinai Temple. This man behind me designed a curriculum that is gonna be used in rabbinical schools for Orthodox, conservative, and reform students about Israel. In other words, all the rabbinical students from all the movements are gonna be learning about Israel because of Sinai Temple. This place deserves your support. If you were here last night, you heard about the mental health center and the good it's doing. This place deserves your support. Don't do it for me. Do it for you. So that this place will be here for your children and your grandchildren, as it has been for me. If you were here last night, you know that I recently returned from Rwanda, where there was a terrible genocide and they're trying to stitch their country back together. 
And you're no longer allowed to say in the country who's, tut who's Tutsi and who's Hutu. Everybody is a Rwandan, but still in the streets, people know your parents killed my parents. Maybe you killed my parents. They live side by side, murderers and victims. And so we had an audience with the president, Kagame, and I only had one question for him. I said to him, how do you forgive? How do you forgive? And he said, you know, I go around the country and people ask me different questions, whatever they want to ask. We have these different audiences. And a couple of years ago, he said, I was stunned when this young man got up and he said, how dare you ask me to do something? My entire family was slaughtered. Why are you asking me to forgive? And Kagami said, I thought for a moment. And then I said to him, because you are the one who has something to give. You all have something to give. Not only materially, but also spiritually. And so, after 39 years, my concluding story. Once a man came to the Baal Shem Tov, to the founder of Hasidism, and he said to him, I can't make a living. I try all these things, but none of it is working and I need your help. And the Baal Shem Tov looked into his eyes and read his soul and said, this is what you must do. Stay by my side. Sometimes you will be by my side. Sometimes you will be behind a screen in my office so whoever comes to see me doesn't know that you're there. And you will hear and see wonders and miracles and amazing things that you can't imagine, and then the rest of your life, you will go around the world and you'll tell the stories of what you experienced at the court of the Hasidim, and that, that will make you a living and maybe even a fortune. So the man spent the year with the Baal Shem Tov, spoke almost not a word, and at the end of the year, he went around the world and he used to tell stories in town after town after town, and then he came to one town. And people weren't so interested in his stories. And he was sitting in the bar and he said to the bartender, isn't there anybody in this town who cares about stories? And he said, oh, we have the man who cares more about stories than anyone. He said, the mayor of this town, wonderful man, good man, kind man, and he collects stories. He will give a gold coin to anyone who can tell him a story that he hasn't heard before, but I warn you, he's heard them all. So the man goes off to the mayor and he starts to tell him stories and sure enough, every story he tells, I've heard that, I've heard that, he finishes it. The man is about to leave and the mayor says, are you sure you don't have any more stories? The man says, you know, I have one more. One more story, but I've never told it before. I don't know if it's the mayor said, tell it, just tell it. He said, once I was in the Baal Shem Tov's office, but I was behind the screen, so I couldn't see who was there. And a man came in and he said to the Baal Shem Tov, 
I have been a terrible man, a complete Russia, a wicked person. I've done awful things and I want to do tshuva. Tell me, how can I repair myself? And the Baal Shem Tov said, this is what you must do. For every bad thing you've done, you must do something good. For every time you haven't given, you must give. You have to live the rest of your life as a tzaddik, as a righteous person. Help people, don't hurt them. Say kind things, don't say cruel things. Give money, don't hoard money. And the man then said to the Baal Shem Tov, and how will I know that I'm forgiven? And the Baal Shem Tov said to him, one day someone will come and tell you this story and you will know. And the mayor began to cry. And he said, that was me. That's my story. That's the story I've been searching for for years and now I know I'm forgiven. So if over almost 40 years I have been able to tell you your story as for almost 40 years you have been so much of my story then we know for all the hurts and all the slights all the pain we can be forgiven. We can go forward in this world with pure souls, with cleansed hearts, and thanks to this place, with many, many, many blessings. Thank you. Thank you. Um, people will now come around with cards and uh, <laughs> I am deeply, deeply touched by your reaction and I will never forget it. I will never forget it. Um, in a moment, we'll start the Yisker service.